Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. So looking forward to 2022 and looking forward to the theme of rejoicing in the Lord, this passage speaks to that issue for us today. And there's five things that the Apostle Paul mentions in relation to rejoicing in the Lord. Five truths. The first one is that rejoicing is in Christ. Rejoicing is in Christ. Because he says here, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I think at the very beginning, we need to make a distinction between two different words that are, in our minds, synonymous, but they really are not. The one word is happiness, the other word is joy. And a lot of people think that they're the same thing, but they're really not. The word happiness has the letters H-A-P-P in front of it, and we get our word happens or happenstance. So to be happy is, is to have an increased emotional exuberation that results from something that happens to you. Happiness is circumstantial. If your circumstances are good, then your happiness level rises. If your circumstances are bad, then your happiness level decreases. For example, if your team wins a Super Bowl, your happiness level rises. If your boss gives you a fat year-end bonus, you're happier than you were before. <laughs> if you find out that the cancer that you had is in remission, your happiness level rises. But what happens if your, your favorite team in the Super Bowl loses? Or your boss calls you into his office and fires you? Or you find out that the cancer is not in remission, it's spread through other parts of your body. All of a sudden, that happiness that was so high as now comes crashing down and disappears completely. Because happiness depends on what happens. Joy is completely different. The Bible tells us that we are to rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Always. That comes from chapter 4, verse 4. And we're going to look at that more closely a little bit later. We are to rejoice always, not when things are going well. We are to rejoice when things are going poorly. In other words, what happens to you does not depend your joy. Your joy is dependent on something else. And the Bible says here, you are to rejoice in the Lord. So our joy is different from happiness because joy is based on your relationship to the Lord. Your joy has a sphere, and the sphere is in the Lord. And the beautiful thing is that your relationship to the Lord never needs to change. In fact, the Lord is immutable. The Lord does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His attributes don't change. If Christ was ever faithful to you, he's faithful to you now, and he will be faithful to you forever. If the Lord has ever loved you, he still loves you and will always love you. And you can say the same thing for his power, his wisdom, his justice, his grace, his kindness, his knowledge. All of the attributes of Jesus Christ are immutable. They're like a solid rock that you can rest on and never have to worry about that thing crumbling under your feet. So because 
Christ will never change, and Christ's word will never change, and his promises will never change. And since Jesus never changes, then your joy doesn't need to change because your joy is in him, and he doesn't change. The only thing that would cause your joy to fluctuate up and down is if you're not drawing upon the Lord. Because the Lord in all of his beauty and his attributes and his glory, he's unchanging. He's a rock that never changes and we can find our sufficiency in him. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that he was sorrowful but always rejoicing. So you can be going through a great time of suffering and still have joy. Now that seems impossible to our, to our ears. How could I be enduring great pain and still have joy? Well, it's because joy is not the same as happiness. Joy is, I'm going to try to define it for you, joy is a supernatural contentment and delight in the Lord. And you can have a contentment and a delight in the Lord even in the midst of great pain. You can be drawing your resources from his all-sufficiency no matter what your condition happens to be, whether it's outwardly favorable or outwardly unfavorable. So, Rejoicing is in Christ. That's the very first thing we need to know about it. It's not in all kinds of other things that we sometimes try to base our joy on. It's only in the Lord. Number two truth, rejoicing is commanded. Rejoicing is commanded. We're going to be speaking about this Greek word for rejoice here in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice is in the imperative mood in Greek. There are different moods. There is the subjunctive mood. I'll give you an example of the subjunctive mood. If he would hit the ball, we would score a run. Would hit the ball, that's subjunctive. Another mood is the indicative mood. And here's an example. He hit the ball. It just indicates what happened. He hit the ball. But the imperative mood is this. Hit the ball! See, it's a command. Whenever you find the imperative mood in a verb in the Greek, it's a command, and that's what we have here. So what we have here is not take it or leave it. You can rejoice if you feel like it. If you don't feel like it, well, then just don't do it. That's not what we have. This is a command of God given to all of God's people for all time that they are to Rejoice in the Lord. This means that if you choose not to rejoice in the Lord, you are sinning. Right? We're breaking a command. A command of God. This means that if we do choose to rejoice in the Lord, we are obeying God. So I need you to see this in the seriousness that it comes to us. This is the difference between sinning and obedience to God. So rejoicing is not an option for the Christian. It's not something you can decide, oh, well, I think I'll do it today, but no, tomorrow I'm, I'm feeling blue. I'm just not going to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. We don't have that option as Christians. This is just like prayer. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to rejoice without ceasing. Both of them are commanded. It's not only in the imperative mood, it's in the active voice. And the Greek has different voices for verbs. One voice is the passive voice. And in the passive voice, the subject of the sentence is being acted upon. The subject of the sentence is not doing the acting. Like we would give an example, the boy was hit by the ball. 
Now, the boy didn't do anything. He didn't actively do anything in that sentence. He was acted upon. The ball hit him, right? But the active voice is different. The boy hit the ball. He did the action. This is in the active voice, the imperative mood. And what that tells you is that we are doing some action when it comes to rejoicing in the Lord. We don't wait around and wait for God to rejoice in the Lord through us. We have a responsibility and a duty to choose to rejoice in the Lord. Does that make sense? We're actually rejoicing. God's not doing it for us. We do the rejoicing. Now, we need to be energized by the Holy Spirit, that's for sure. But there is still an aspect of this that is within our volition. We make conscious choices to find our contentment and our delight in the Lord rather than just to ignore Him and feel blue or gloomy or depressed. We need to focus our attention on the Lord and find our contentment and delight in Him. Now, it's interesting, I think, to focus on what we're not told to rejoice in. He tells us here to rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't tell us to rejoice in our spouse or in our children or in our jobs or our puppies for us <laughs> or our money or our house or our possessions or our reputation or anything else. All of the things that we try to look to to find satisfaction in life he says, no, you are to find your joy, your contentment and delight in the Lord himself. And of course, we're not to rejoice in our sin. That goes without saying. Now, consider this first aspect. Rejoicing is commanded. It's in Christ and it's commanded. And if it's commanded, then God holds us responsible for this action. And this is something that doesn't happen automatically for Christians. If this were something that just happened automatically, then there would be no reason for Paul to tell them to do it because it's going to happen whether he tells them to do it or not. This is something that we are involved in. We cooperate with the Lord in rejoicing. So we have to choose to rejoice in the Lord. Third truth, rejoicing is to be continual. So it is in Christ, it's commanded, and it's continual. And the reason I say that is because this is in the present tense. This Greek word, to rejoice, is in the present tense. And the present tense means of ongoing, continuous activity. Kenneth Wiest, who is a great Greek scholar, has paraphrased Philippians 3.1 this way. Go on constantly rejoicing in the Lord. That's how he put Philippians 3.1. Go on constantly rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, to rejoice in the Lord is to be a lifestyle. It's not something we do once in a blue moon. It's the regular ongoing habit of our lives, or it ought to be. Just like prayer is, pray without ceasing. You are to rejoice without ceasing. Paul said he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Do you hear the word that it is used in connection with rejoice over and over and over? It's always. Not sometimes. Not even most of the time. This is to be the, 
the, the always <laughs> tense of the Christian life. This is something that he has to do at all times, every day. You never take a break. You never take a day off from rejoicing in the Lord. This is to be what you do every single day of your life. And rejoicing is not what happens when you have no problems either. All we have to do is think about the Philippians. The Philippians had their problems. The Philippians were persecuted. We know that from chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, In no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The Philippians were suffering because they had opponents that were coming against them and their Christian faith. They were being persecuted. Not only that, but they were living in poverty. I don't know if you realize that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about the churches of Macedonia, and he describes them. Let me read this description. It's 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 and 2. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, and Philippi was in Macedonia, that region, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. So here you have a church that is not rich. They're not wealthy. They're poor. In fact, they're not just average poor. They're, he talks about deep poverty. But they wanted to give so much that they gave even more than the ability that they had. They were giving until they didn't have anything left. So they were a poor church. They were a persecuted church. And this church also was anxious and concerned both for Epaphroditus and for the Apostle Paul. They had heard that Epaphroditus was sick and they were worried about him. They had heard that Paul was facing his trial there in Rome and they didn't know what was going to happen to him. The very one that had planted the church and was like a father figure to them. This is a church with problems. Joy is not something that happens to you when you have no problems. Paul tells this church, with all of these problems, to rejoice in the Lord. And Paul's not telling them that they're supposed to have some kind of a fake joy. In other words, just put on a plastic smile and pretend that everything's great. He's not telling them that either. He's not telling them to rejoice because the problems that they were facing were not that bad. They were bad. They were serious issues and serious problems. He's telling them to rejoice because their joy, the reason for their joy was way bigger than the reason for their problems. They need to see it in perspective. The reason for your joy is way up here and the reason for your problem is down here in comparison. So you can still rejoice no matter what problems you're facing. So brothers and sisters, there should never be a time that you and I are not rejoicing in the Lord. Now that doesn't mean you're going to go around feeling giddy all the time. This is an inner, a deep sense of contentment and of receiving of Christ's sufficiency that makes up for your lack and your needs. That you're drawing upon Him. So I think it's the same thing as abiding in Christ. You're drawing upon the resources that are in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Fourth truth, rejoicing is for Christians. Now, where do I get that? 
Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He commands Christians to rejoice in the Lord. He's not commanding non-Christians. And he, it would make no sense to command non-Christians to rejoice in the Lord because they can't. It's impossible for someone who does not know the Lord to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord implies communion and union to Christ. They don't have that. You, you can't rejoice in someone that you do not know. And you will never rejoice in someone that you don't know their value. And they don't. They don't appraise the Lord rightly. So this is for Christians. No one but a Christian can find his contentment and delight in Jesus Christ. And uns so that means this. An unsaved person can never experience the kind of joy that Paul is talking about. It's out of their reach. Before they can experience it, they must be born again. So the best that a non-saved person can hope for is happiness. We're talking about something that dwells within you no matter what's happening in your life. You can be being burned at the stake and you can have this kind of an experience, this joy in the Lord, because it doesn't relate to your sufferings. Not only is rejoicing in the Lord limited to Christians, but rejoicing in the Lord can be experienced by every Christian. He says, brethren, that means all of his brothers and sisters are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. So this is not a command just for pastors, elders, deacons, apostles, prophets, missionaries, Christian leaders. It doesn't matter who you are. If you've been born of the Holy Spirit, this command just comes to you. You can rejoice in the Lord and you can do it. You can have this joy in your life always. It is possible for every Christian. Now that brings us to our final truth, fifth truth. Rejoicing must be contended for. And I'm getting that from verse 2. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. If that's true, and I think he's right about that, then God is serious about our joy. In fact, you should, do, you should get a concordance or go online to like blueletterbible.com and, and do searches and just put in the word joy or rejoice and find how many times these words surface in the Bible. This isn't a little peripheral subject in Scripture. This is a major theme of all God's people throughout Old and New Testament. Now, is it true that joy is the serious business of heaven? Is it true that God is serious about your and my joy? Well, just turn back to Philippians 1. And take a look here at what Paul writes. Look at verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now let's think about what he's saying. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm going to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for you. 
However, verse 23, I'm hard-pressed because I have the desire to depart. Paul had the desire to die and to be with Christ. And what does he say about that? It's very much better. For Paul, it was very much better to, de- to die and to depart and to be with Christ. But yet he says, if I do remain on in the flesh, that's more necessary for your sake. And so here's the conclusion. Convinced of this, I know that I'm going to remain and continue with you all. Why? Why would Paul, instead of dying and departing to be with the Lord, even though that's very much better, why would he not do that but stay on in the flesh, verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith? Paul was staying, and here's the reason why, he wanted to impart progress and joy to these believers in their faith. So joy in their faith is not some kind of a small, light, peripheral matter. This is a major subject for the Christian. We don't think of it that way, but it is. And so I want you throughout 2022 to come back again and again and again to this message and and think about Paul's command, rejoice in the Lord. It's something that we have to contend for because it's that important in the Christian life. Now, we've got to be so serious about joy that we're willing to fight any enemy that would rob us from that joy. And that's where verse 2 comes in. Because Paul identifies some enemies that would seek to rob these Christians of their joy in the Lord. He says, beware, three times. And again, the word beware is a command. Watch out for, be on the lookout for. Who? The dogs? the evil workers, the false circumcision. Now let's take each phrase. Take the final one first, the false circumcision, because that really tells us who he's talking about. Who is the false circumcision? Well, this is the Judaizers. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term before, but these were Jews. They didn't believe in Jesus, but they didn't believe that Jesus alone was enough for Gentiles who turned to the Lord. They believed that if a Gentile was to be saved, He did have to believe in Jesus, but he also had to be circumcised and he had to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul would come into an area like Philippi. He would preach the gospel and raise up a church and leave. And as soon as he's gone, these Judaizers would come in behind him and they would say, you know, Paul's right about the fact that you have to believe in Jesus, but he didn't tell you all of the gospel. The rest of the gospel is that you need to get circumcised and you need to obey the law of Moses if you're to be saved. So Paul calls them the false circumcision, not the true circumcision. He's going to tell us who the true circumcision is in verse 3. We'll get to that next time. So he's talking about these Judaizers, those that taught Jesus plus. Jesus alone is not enough. You need something in addition to Jesus. And that's where all heresy and false doctrine springs from. Jesus Christ alone is not sufficient. He also called them the dogs. Now you might think, well, what's wrong with that? (laughs) Our dogs are cute, cuddly, adorable. We love our dogs. They come and sit in our laps. They're our friends. That's not what Paul had in mind when he talked about the dogs here. Because in the first century, dogs were wild, and there were scavengers, 
and they would run wild through cities and villages and they would tear up the trash and they sometimes would snarl and sometimes they were rabid and sometimes they would even attack each other and humans. So these are not your cute, cuddly, man's best friend type of dogs. These are the kind of dogs you want to have nothing to do with. And in fact, the Jews often called Gentiles dogs because it was a slur. Of course, Gentile, or Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles, and so they would call them the dogs. But these Judaizers would call Gentile Christians dogs because they hadn't been circumcised yet. But Paul turns the tables on them and calls them false circumcision and calls them the dogs. In other words, they were the ones who were unclean, filthy, snarling, and dangerous. And their doctrine is so dangerous and rabid that they should have nothing to do with these Judaizers. If they listened to these Judaizers, their joy would be stolen away. And they would find themselves feeling distant from the Lord. Because the Judaizers were going to try to get them to focus on themselves rather than the Lord. They would focus on their achievements, their works, their law-keeping, their performance. And any time you start focusing inward on yourself, your joy goes out the window. Because remember, rejoicing is in the Lord. It's not in you. And so beware of anybody that comes into your life that is an enemy to your joy that takes your mind and your attention and your focus off of the Lord and puts it onto you or anything else besides the Lord. So, if you meet someone that tell, tells you, well, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but that's really not enough. You also need to be water baptized. You need to speak in tongues. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to tithe. They add anything to Jesus some kind of rule, some kind of ritual, some kind of uh, something in addition that you've got to do this in order to really be right with God. You know you've found someone that's going to steal your joy and is teaching you false doctrine. The Bible teaches us that we're complete in Christ. Now the third phrase that he uses to describe these people is evil workers. They're dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. Evil worker they looked at themselves as being workers of righteousness because they were the ones who sought to enforce circumcision and enforce the law on these Gentiles. But they were seeking to earn God's favor by their righteous deeds and they were trying to get these Gentiles to seek God's favor through their righteousness. And why would that then be evil? Why would Paul call them evil workers? I think it's because they were motivated by pride. They were motivated by what they could do to earn the favor of God, which is exactly the opposite of how the gospel works. That's the opposite of how grace works. You can't earn the favor of God. Favor means something that is freely given. right? You can't earn something that's freely given. If I take my watch off and give it to you, and you give me 10 bucks, well then I didn't give it to you. Right? God gives us everything in Christ. So beware of anything or anyone that takes your focus off of Jesus and puts it either onto yourself and your works or onto something else in your life because that is going to diminish your joy. Your joy comes from your communion and union with Jesus Christ. It doesn't come to us because of our works, our efforts, 
our sacrifice. If someone tells you the way to have joy is just to be a better person, try harder, work harder, change yourself, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the Lord comes and the Lord does the work in those who have been born of his spirit as we yield ourselves to him and cooperate with the work of the spirit in our lives. So look away from yourself to Jesus Christ. So there are the five truths that I see in this passage about rejoicing. It's in Christ, it's commanded, it's continual, it's for Christians, and we have to contend for it. It won't come to you automatically. You've got to fight for joy. So how do we go about experiencing it? That's the biggest question, right? How can I experience this joy and how can I have this joy always rather than once in a while? Well, if it's in the Lord, the way that you can experience this joy is by experiencing the Lord. If this joy comes to us in the Lord, then we've got to be those who are going after the Lord with all of our hearts. And so this means that you've got to seek the Lord. It means you've got to worship the Lord, praise the Lord. It means you need to pray to the Lord. You need to commune with the Lord. You need to serve the Lord. You need to walk with the Lord. In short, it means you need to live the Christian life, which is a life of communion with Christ. So rejoicing comes as we make Jesus Christ the focus of our entire lives. Joy is a byproduct of that communion with him. And so if we want to experience more joy in our lives, we need to draw close to the Lord. And we need to resist those things that would draw us away from Christ. Embrace the things that draw us to him. Resist the things that draw us away from him. And so here are some questions I want you just to consider this morning. What is keeping you from finding your joy in the Lord? Does something come to mind right away? If it does, it's probably the Holy Spirit. <laughs> what is keeping you from finding your joy in the Lord? What decision can you make today, right now, that will enable you to obey this command to rejoice in the Lord? Is there something practical? Is there something measurable? Like you could come back next week and you could say yes or no, uh, I did that thing or I didn't do that thing that was keeping me from rejoicing in the Lord. See if you can identify that. So when things are going well, we're gonna rejoice. When things are going bad, we're gonna rejoice. We're going to find our life and our well-being and our delight and our contentment and our pleasure in Him. That's, that's God's will for you. Not in things, not in happenings, not in circumstances, not in people, not in possessions, not in anything else, vacations or money. It's in Him and Him alone. And so I'd like us to, to break up into small groups of two or at the most three in like a little breakout session. And what I want you to do is summarize this message to that other person, reteach it quickly to each other, and then see if you can identify something in your life that's hindering you from expressing the joy of the Lord. If you can think of that, confess that to that person so that you can pray for one another. The Bible says confess our faults to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Well, here's a way that we can do that this morning. 